Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me to the Gospel according to John chapter 3. John 3, and this morning we will be in the first eight verses of chapter 3 in John's Gospel. And I was reminded this week, as we are about to, uh, I hope, uh, feast on God's Word, that, that God's Word is often in Scripture even talked about as a meal, that we would partake of this meal, that we would eat, that we would meditate on it, that it would take root in our hearts and lives, and that even perhaps after we leave this place, that you would do what a cow does. A cow regurgitates the food that it's eaten, chews its cud, that maybe even after this morning, even after this sermon, even after you leave here, sometime this week, this afternoon perhaps, Monday, Tuesday, you would regurgitate some of these truths. You would chew on them again. That You would continue to think about them again. And that as you do that, the sweetness of this meal would remain. You continue on in your heart, in your life, in your mind. So well, as we partake of this feast, would you stand with me as I read John 3, 1 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O oh, Father, may we taste and see that you are good. And may that happen through your holy word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There's been a 
label that's been popularized in our culture, a label that you might hear perhaps in the media every now and then, a label maybe that even you have used sometime in your conversations with other peoples. And what's interesting is that people might have heard this label or know this label and never have been in church before. A label that maybe is used, but I wonder if we've given much thought to it. It's this label, born-again evangelicals. So let's think about this label for a moment, specifically this label of born again. When the media talks about born-again evangelicals, I find it most often they are grouped into a political demographic. That's how they think of these born-again evangelicals. They're going to vote a particular way. So perhaps they would say that a particular political candidate is appealing to those born-again Christians. The term born-again, if we think about that, seems to have risen in prominence with the election of Jimmy Carter, who became known as the nation's first born-again president. It also rose to prominence with a book written by a man named Chuck Colson that was entitled Born Again, which told of his conversion experience. In fact, in 1976, a Gallup poll showed that 34% of Americans considered themselves to be born again. Think about that. That is about one-third of the American population in 1976 considered themselves to be born again. That term, that label, born again, continued to rise in popularity, probably reaching its peak in about 2010. Since then, it's been on the decline in common conversation. Now it's more hip to say something like Christ follower. But perhaps the most enduring term, other than Christian throughout the ages, has been the term believer. That label, that term, born again, is taken directly from our text this morning. Directly from John 3, verses 1 through 8. If you were to do a simple word search in the Bible for this term, you would find that in most English translations, it's only used four times. Two of those times are here in John 3. The two other times are in 1 Peter Although 1 Peter uses a different Greek word there. How would something that's used so minimally in the scriptures become such a common title used by so many Christians? The term born again at the root of it has to do with conversion. Perhaps you have been asked or you've asked someone else, how is it that you were born again? This is another way of saying, what's your testimony? How is it that you were saved or converted? I wonder, though, if for a moment, in thinking about that question, how were you born again? We might think of the answers that are given. Here are a few selected samples of what someone might say. I filled out a decision card and slipped that into the offering plate as it went by. 
I raised my hand as I was instructed to by the preacher while everyone else's heads were supposed to be bowed and their eyes were supposed to be closed. I repeated the words of the sinner's prayer. Now, I'm not saying that God might not use these means, but think about the emphasis of those answers for a moment. They are all about the individual and personal experience and often the individual and personal choosing. Think about that, though, in contrast for a moment with physical birth. So born again, you hear this idea of birth in there. Think about that, though, in terms of physical birth. Think about the absurdity if someone asked you, how were you born? Has anyone ever asked you that question before? No one's ever asked me that question. And do you know why no one's ever asked me that question? Because generally speaking, we know how babies are born. I didn't induce contractions. I didn't break my mother's water. Interestingly, it wasn't us who initiated that birth. So no one ever asks us, how were you born? As if it was something unique or even something necessarily different. Now, maybe we could say, well, I was born in the back of a taxi cab, or I was born in a hospital, so different locations, but same birth. If, we're look, if we are to look at our text this morning and listen to what Jesus says about being born again, we might start to rethink how we understand that term. And instead of letting others define that term, or defining that term for ourselves, we have to listen to how Jesus defines it and listens to what he says about it because he does not make it about individual or personal experience per se. That is, he does not highlight the uniqueness of each individual person. What he highlights is the similarity. He doesn't highlight an individual's choice. Well, it's up to you, Nicodemus. What do you want to do? Do you want to be born again or not? As we try to move away from all of the unhelpful ideas of what it means to be born again, and move to a more Christ-defined, Scripture-promoting definition, it might be helpful to think about this term in a different way. Jesus is teaching Nicodemus, and he's teaching us, about the new birth. And it fits within the context of what John is doing in his gospel. What John is doing in his gospel is he's contrasting the old and the new. Remember even 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 17. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And that's exactly what John is showing to us. So he starts by contrasting the old creation with the new creation in Jesus Christ. In the beginning, God created. But now, in the beginning was the Word. He contrasts the Old Testament law and the purification laws with the new wine now that comes with Jesus Christ inaugurating the Messianic age. He contrasts the old temple built out of brick and mortar with the new temple, which is Christ's body. And now he contrasts the old man with the new birth. 
And John strategically connects the previous verses with our verses this morning. He does this by using the word man. Look here, going back, just a verse. 225. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then what does it say? Now there was a man. You want to know what is in man? You want to know what Jesus saw? I'm going to show you what's in man. And he does this, interestingly enough, through various people's lives. So we start with one man's life in particular, but we're going to move through other people's lives as well as John shows us what is in man. But where would you expect? Where would you expect John to start? If I were going to explain to you and tell you what is in man, and if we go back to these verses before, Jesus was not entrusting himself to man because he knew what was in man. So there is this sense of negative. Something is in man that is not good. Where would we expect John to start? With the most vile, wretched, disgusting sinners? Where does John start? He starts with a religious person. I'm going to show you how bad man is by starting with the good people, by starting with the moral people, by starting with the religious people, by starting with this Pharisee. How about I begin with the self-righteous? How about I begin with those who are supposed to be the religious teachers of the people? If you want to know what is in man, look no further than the religious. So we begin to think about this question. Who is it that needs the new birth? And what does this new birth accomplish in mankind? Three truths I want us to meditate on this morning. Number one, from the first three verses, the new birth gives spiritual sight. The new birth gives spiritual sight. As we begin this interaction with between Jesus and Nicodemus, we start with a resume. Who is this man? Well, he's a Pharisee. He is the very religious, and he is seen as the very righteous. He is seen as an elite in Jewish society. If you were to ask the common Jew who the holy people were in their midst, they might have easily pointed to those who were Pharisees. Not only was he a Pharisee, but he was also a ruler of the Jews. Most likely he was a part of a group known as the Sanhedrin. This is a group of about 70 Jews who had authority in Jewish society. Interestingly, if you look at some of the hardest words that Jesus speaks, he speaks them to people who are Pharisees. He speaks them to those who think of themselves as very religious. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. That's the scene, the backdrop of this encounter. 
Why does John tell us that this meeting took place at night? Some think it's just a piece of situational information. He's just telling us when they met, that's all. Some think it might be night because Nicodemus was fearful of meeting Jesus in broad daylight. What would other people think? What would other Pharisees think? Some think that it was just when it was most convenient. Nicodemus was a busy man during the day. This was the only time he had to meet with Jesus. It was when he was available and free. I must admit, we're not given any commentary by John on why Jesus or why Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. But what's interesting is that when you look at how John uses the word night in his gospel, he uses it three other times. So if you want to do your homework, John 9, 4, John eleven ten, 10, and John 13, 30. John 9, 4, 11, 10, and 13, 30. In those instances, night is often used to describe moral or spiritual darkness. So could it be here that John tells us Nicodemus came to Jesus at night to set the scene of Nicodemus's heart? Here is a man covered in darkness, and it fits with our point. Nicodemus was spiritually blind. Even though he claims to see, he calls Jesus rabbi, a term of respect, seeing Jesus as a teacher, even though Jesus had no formal religious training. And he says, we know. Interesting, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, we know. Nicodemus, who is this we that you're talking about? Do you have a mouse in your pocket? Most likely this is Nicodemus' way of saying that there are a few others who are a part of the Pharisees or of the Sanhedrin who recognize what he is about to say. He's relaying his own opinion, but there is the same opinion among other people as well. And notice the confidence. Notice, notice the self-assuredness. We know. Many self-assured people claim to know who Jesus is. What does Nicodemus say? You are a teacher come from God because no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The only way Jesus that you can do these signs is by the power of God. So God's presence must be with you. We know this about your identity, Jesus. It's plain to us. We see it. Notice here too, Nicodemus comes to Jesus with a statement, doesn't he? It's not a question, at least not a direct question. At this point, why would Jesus need to respond? There's no question, it's just a statement. You're claiming that you know who I am. But it comes with an implied question. Nicodemus says he knows where Jesus comes from, but he wants to know what Jesus has to say about himself. We know who you are, Jesus, but who do you say that you are? Tell me who you are, Jesus. To which Jesus replies, truly, truly, or verily, verily, or amen, 
Amen. Basically, Jesus is saying this. Know this for certain. You come to me, Nicodemus, with this self-assuredness, with this confidence of you think you know my identity, you think you know where I have come from. Truly, truly, know this for certain. Sit up and listen. Don't let this pass you by. Take this truth into your heart and your mind. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What is Jesus' response to Nicodemus? I can't tell you who I am because you are spiritually blind. Only those who are born again. Or, that word again could also be translated from above. And John, or Jesus, could be using both at the same time. Born again, born from above. Unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see. He needs a heavenly birth. And if one has this heavenly birth, they will see the greatest thing imaginable, for they will see the kingdom of God. Think, Nicodemus is unable to sort out heavenly realities. He lacks spiritual insight. He cannot see the kingdom of God. What is that? What is the kingdom of God? It is the saving and transforming reign of God that is brought to those who are born again because they have seen the king. Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom because you can't see the king. The king is before your eyes. You, a ruler of the Jews, have missed the one who is the king of the Jews. How blind can you be? Oh, if you were just more like Nathaniel who exclaimed this, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Nicodemus, you see the signs but you lack the spiritual sight to see the one to whom the signs point. They point to the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And what happens when you see the King? What happens when you gain that spiritual sight? You follow the King. You give yourself to the king. It's not enough to have the knowledge that Jesus is the king because the knowledge of knowing Jesus is the king leads to a response. Either it's a rejection of that king or it's an undivided heart of allegiance and devotion to that king. If I know Jesus is the king, if I see him, he is the king, I will give myself to him. I have to. There's no other choice. Number two, the new birth gives spiritual life in verses four through six. The new birth gives spiritual life. Nicodemus latches on to the term born again. 
It's not computing in his understanding because he's taking it literally. Even though it could be translated from above, Nicodemus shows he understands it to be born again. And it sparks some questions in him. How can a man be born a second time when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And just in asking those questions, you can hear the ridiculousness of such an idea. In Nicodemus' questions, you hear the preposterous, absolute absurdity. This isn't the way it works. It's impossible. The questions that Nicodemus asks show that Nicodemus is only thinking in an earthly and physical way. You might think that a religious person could hide their lack of heavenly-mindedness, but they can't. Nicodemus' questions shows that he is bound to thinking in an earthly way. His heart is connected to the earth, not to heaven. And even though Nicodemus's questions expose its impossibility, Jesus, notice, doesn't say it's impossible. What does he say? He says, Nicodemus, you've got it all backward. Again, truly, truly, I say to you. And now what Jesus is going to say is he's going to say the same thing, just in a slightly different way. So truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born now, not again, but of water and the Spirit, he cannot no longer see, but now enter the kingdom of God. Do you see what Jesus has just done here in this statement? He's corrected Nicodemus's question. He's corrected Nicodemus's thinking. Look back here for a moment. Run your finger over this. You'll, you'll see it. Notice Nicodemus's question, particularly the second question. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And now look what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You see what Jesus does is he reverses it. Nicodemus says, can he enter first and then be born? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not the way it works. What happens first is you are born, and when you are born of water and the Spirit, then you enter into the kingdom of God. He wants to highlight to Nicodemus the life-giving power of the new birth. This is why Jesus makes this switch from being born again to being born of water and the Spirit. Because I think what Jesus is doing here is he's using Ezekiel 36, the verses that we read this morning already. Ezekiel 36, 25, and 26. If you want to turn back there with me, you can. But what does he say there? Particularly, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus is using this as an explanation of the new birth. What is this new birth? It is 
Nothing less than a cleansing that is needed and a renewal and a transformation. Jesus says what you need is this life-giving birth to completely change you from the inside out. In fact, let's look at a few other verses that I think are helpful. Go back to Isaiah 32, 15. Isaiah 32, 15. Isaiah 32, 15. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. So, so what's happening? Here is the Spirit that's being poured out. So again, here's this imagery of water that's being poured out. And when the Spirit is poured out, what happens? There's this life-giving transformation that happens. The wilderness becomes a fruitful field. The field is deemed a forest. How about go over to Isaiah 44, verses 3 and 4. Isaiah 44, 3 and 4. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will, again, Pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. What's happening there again? Life. Life where there was barrenness. Life where there was deadness. Life where there was nothing. The focus here is on the need for transformation for the new life that comes from another realm by the intervention of the Spirit of God. It is no accident that when God created, you have both their water and the work of the Spirit. The new birth is a new creation. It is someone's complete renewal. It is taking someone who is spiritually dead and lifeless, those who are dead in their trespasses and sin, and making them alive together with Christ. Here is then regeneration that is needed in order to enter the kingdom of God. And this regeneration that is needed, you hear that in the word regeneration? It's this making new. So in making us new, in regenerating us, what is needed? Do we need just a little improvement on ourselves? Like, like we have most of it together, but we just, we just need a little bit of regeneration. We just need a little bit of renewal. No, we need total and complete renewal. Why? Why do we need total and complete renewal and regeneration? Because we are totally depraved people. Look at what he says here. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. What we need is this birth, this new birth of the spirit that is spirit because 
it's that which gives us a new nature. Before we are regenerated, before we are saved, we are bound by our sin. We are under the dominion of sin. That is the old man. That is the old nature. But when there is the birth of the Spirit that takes place in someone, they are given a new nature where now they are able to obey God. Before, we were not able to obey God. We could only obey our sinful will. But now, we are given a new nature so we are able to obey God. Do we still sin? Yes. We still fall. We still sin. But we also have the ability to obey God. We also have the ability to walk in righteousness and holiness and godliness. And how has this happened? Because we've been given a new nature. Look at Titus. Titus chapter 3. Right after the Timothys. If you're just flipping through your Bible. First and second Timothy, then Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. That when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. How? How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is what is needed even in the religious man like Nicodemus. The religious man was spiritually blind, he was spiritually dead, and he was plagued by his inability. That's why Jesus says what he says in the last two verses. The new birth is of the sovereign spirit. The new birth, this is point three, is of the sovereign spirit man's inability has been the theme of these verses. Look at verses 3 and 5. Unless one is born again, unless he is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see, he cannot enter. Man is helpless, incapacitated, completely immobile. And then Jesus says this, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. In a sense, Nicodemus, you know this to be true. You must be born again. You're a teacher of Israel. This should be plain and evident to you. You must be born again. And that must is a divine must. God says you must be born again. You must be born from above. But look at what Jesus says. Do not marvel. Do not be surprised that I say that. And if I... I'm reading this rightly, and I pray that I am, and I think that I am. Jesus does tell Nicodemus what to marvel at. Have you marveled at anything lately? Has there been anything this week that surprised you, that you marveled at, that you said, wow, that's amazing, that's great? Jesus says, marvel at this. The wind. Have you marveled at the wind lately? 
maybe we would marvel more at the wind if we would accept the truth that we've never seen the wind. You've never seen the wind. You've seen the effects of the wind. You've seen your garbage can blown out in the middle of the street. How did that get here? The wind? You've seen the leaves blowing. You've seen the trees swaying. You've seen the effects of the wind, but you've never seen the wind. Interestingly, in the Hebrew language and in the Greek language, one word is used in each of those languages, so different words, because Hebrew and Greek are different languages, but in the Hebrew, one word is used, in the Greek, one word is used, and this, that word means spirit, it means wind, it means breath. In the Hebrew language, it's ruach, in Greek, it's pneuma. You might think of pneumatic, something that's powered by air. This is blowing, wind. And what does Jesus say here? Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. But marvel at this. The wind blows where it wishes or where it wills or where it desires to blow. And you don't know where it comes from and you don't know where it's going. You just see the effects of it. And so it is with the Spirit. You see the effects of the Spirit. You see what the Spirit wills and wishes. You see the desired effects of the Spirit upon a person. And it's the same with the one who is born again. The presence of the Spirit affects the regenerated person and it is undeniable and it is unshakable. Do you hear the sound of the wind? The Spirit who affects people in the expression of faith and repentance? Do you hear the sound of regeneration? It is in the mouths that confess that they are sinners and who turn away from their sin. It is in the mouths of those who confess Jesus is Lord. And when the Spirit blows and breathes upon these persons, they come to life by His sovereign will. It's His sovereign, here's a big word, I'm warning you, monergistic, that is single, only, only his work, only his energy, the spirit bringing about the new birth, the salvation in one's life. And you can't control it like you can't control the wind. You can't manipulate it like you can ma try to manipulate the wind. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. Marvel at this. You are powerless against the omnipotent and sovereign God who alone transforms mankind. Nicodemus, you are right in thinking that God is the sole author of the miracles. But it is better than this, for God is the sole author of salvation. Nicodemus, you are right in thinking the signs attest to the presence of God, but being born of the Spirit is the true and full attestation of the Spirit of God at work among His people. Those who are born of the Spirit have their origin and destiny in the unseen God, not in the power of human decision. 
Who is it then that needs the new birth? The religious, the self-righteous, the work-depending, self-justifying Pharisees need the new birth. Maybe even people like us. Thank you for your word, O oh Lord. Let us understand it. Let us take it in and use it in our hearts and lives this week. May we continue to feast upon it, taste of its goodness and its sweetness. And know of its transforming work in our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.